Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Haida. So we've got a big show uh, for you today. We're really excited to have Nat Rowe on the program. Uh, Nat is the executive director of Flux Factory. Um, he, prior to joining Flux Factory in 2014, he was the founding owner of Silent Barn, um, as well as DJing at WFMU. Um, Nat has written a whole bunch of things and, uh, you know, he has a, a background in journalism. But the reason we having him on today is that Flux recently acquired uh, the building that they've been um, uh, residing in for since 2008, I believe. And so uh, that, along with uh, another gallery building, is uh, going to make the residency that they have um, a lot, uh, just a lot more stable. Thank you so much for having me. And it means, you know, we've been kind of um, in touch for so many years now. So I know you really understand a lot of what Flux and I are up to. So it means the world to be here today. Thank you so much. Um, it, it's absolutely our pleasure. Um, so now normally when we uh, do the show, we, uh, for the last, uh, I guess, year and a half, we've been talking to people about um how things are going, doing a COVID check-in. Um, and we are at least sort of coming out of that, except I think, uh, Nat, you tested positive. <laughs> yeah, I, I, have, I have COVID right now. I'm like <laughs> contagious right now. So I'm, I'm isolating at the moment. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I feel really lucky because I'm super low symptom. And I mean, I... I knew this was going to happen to me at some point, and I was really just hoping it would be minor, and it is. And it is totally canceling my Thanksgiving, which, like, on the one hand, I'm like, would I rather spend a week alone, or would I rather spend it, like, cramped in the same household with my entire family, like, you know, parents, kids, like, so I don't know uh, if this is terrible timing or great timing. A little bit of, yeah, it's the flip side, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> you know, a little bit of both. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had my booster shot, uh, recently, which, um, I had two doses of Pfizer and then I got the Moderna. Um, so I had like slight symptoms for that, but I feel like that's, that's the extent of it, uh, for me. And we had a housewarming party recently, um, which was like something we'd never, we hadn't done in like two years and we had moved during the pandemic. So that was, uh, that was kind of a big deal for us. Then um, afterwards, somebody tested positive um, for COVID. So, you know, I ended up sending an email to everybody at the party that's like, look, you know, you've got to get tested. Um, and then it came back that like, actually the, the COVID test was a uh, false positive. So... <laughs> I mean, I had, I had three rapid tests that came back negative. And then I, I had the PCR come back positive and I was kind of holding out that it was a fluke. Um, but then I did get actually a second, like last night I got a second positive PCR, but I've never heard of that before of like three 
like three rapid tests being wrong? There was there was an episode that somebody was talking on WNYC the other morning about getting or maybe it was um, even Biden's press secretary had three like rapid tests that came back negative, negative, negative. And then a PCR test was positive. And it was, you know, this the incubation period of like three or four days. And then the PCR test caught it. So, I mean, there, that seems to be something that, you know, we're still kind of dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to say yeah. the least. Well, Patty, I feel uh, like I, <laughs> now that you're telling me that the housewarming party, there was a COVID scare. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, my wife and I couldn't make the uh, housewarming. And uh, I guess we missed that drama, but we, we both just got our boosters. Um, now we're a kind of mixed household. We both started out with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And then right. when we went to get, get we, we went on uh, like separate days to get the boosters and she went with the Moderna and, uh, you know, knock on wood, I've not had uh, COVID yet. And so I was like, if the Johnson & Johnson is working, I'm just going to stick with that and get a second shot of that. But it definitely, I could, I, I had, I could feel that one um, in a way that the first round of the vaccine did not have any kind of like side effects. My arm wasn't even sore. And this time, you know, oh, wow. still kind of feeling it a little bit. Yeah. 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 I had joint pain. Um, that was that was new. Um, but each time I had a fairly significant arm um, discomfort. But I mean, compared to I think what some people go through that, like, I think was it's really just a walk in the park. So I feel very lucky about that. You know, the other thing that I wanted to mention just briefly um, before we get into the talk with um, Matt is that I, um, um, as COVID lifts, I've been feeling more and more emboldened to go to galleries. Um, the injury that I've had that's lasted for fucking ever um, finally feels like it's lifting. And I've spent, um, you know, a bunch of time in Tribeca Um and that's like sort of following on the heels of the New York Times article that talked about how Tribeca was the new um, sort of hotspot for galleries. And like, holy shit, it, it's just a complete transformation down there. It's, um, there is so many galleries there. Um, a lot of them are pretty big names like Laura Augustine, David Zwerner, Bortolomi has like two locations now. Uh, Denny Dimon is in a larger location than they were in before. Um, PPOW has a, a really nice uh, sort of spot on Broadway. Um, so there's suddenly it's like it takes a long time to go over there and get through everything. And it would not feel like such a, a, an abrupt, I think, transformation because this has been going on for a while. If I think we had been going to like if we hadn't had COVID in the middle and like everybody was like scared to get on the subway. So it does feel sort of, sort of sudden. Yeah. I mean, the, a lot of the visual art spaces just to, you know, what I've noticed have, have managed reopening a lot more gracefully than the music spaces. You know, I, I used to work more centrally in music and it's still like a complete shit show about how these and some of the you know the nonprofit performing arts spaces of course also had a little bit more of a you know a pillow to land on but um, there was actually you know a halfway decent article in the times that just came out like a day or two ago about how all these uh LLCs that are running 
you know, it's a bar with a performing space, but they're still super beloved, super important cultural spaces are like, like 15 months behind on rent. And I'm just like, oh my God, like you reopened this weekend, but like how it's like not as safe feeling as a gallery that has like ticketed hours, you know, when you're able to get in. Um, And I'm like, oh my God, this is just, is this going to be here a year from now? It's so it's uh, the music scene is, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my understanding yeah. is that it's like it's really affected um, music spaces, particularly sort of in the middle where like normally if somebody was touring, they'd take like the weekends for the bigger cities. And then in between, they would have these smaller um, venues that kind of flesh out the tour and um, kind of make the whole thing viable. Um, and all of those smaller spaces have just completely disappeared. Um, so the tour, the touring industry is really fucked. Yeah. My understanding. I mean, basically all of my favorite venues in New York were already closed before the pandemic though. So, you know, (laughs) yeah. And I think, you know, Patty, it's, it's really interesting because in Tribeca, we're seeing a very sort of rapid cycle of, not necessarily gentrification, but there's, when you talk about Zwerner moving into Tribeca, the rents, of course, are are starting to rise. A lot of the galleries move there with 10-year leases expiring in Chelsea and that kind of rising rent and not very useful crowds of tourists along the High Line who aren't necessarily going into the galleries. But between the pandemic and this kind of pressure of new new galleries and bigger commercial galleries moving into the space, I'm very concerned that even my own gallery postmasters might not be able to, you know, survive uh, in that space. Um, there's, you know, a number of pressures on the gallery, but certainly Zwerner moving in with that kind of visibility has made the landlord very aware of what they can potentially get for that space and may not be as interested in negotiating um, lost rent from the pandemic period when the gallery simply just could not be open, you know, whether by appointment or not. So Nate, when you say, you know, gallery, music spaces are um, 15 months behind rent, you know, I think that that may be affecting some other commercial galleries. And yeah, Patty, I think you were talking about the New York Times piece about uh, Tribeca and sort of like this this very flush and healthy gallery system down there. I I worry if that's really true for all of the galleries, um, or or if we're going to see some you know potential closures down down the line. Well, I think it's not. I mean, we've seen. I I think we've seen a change in the landscape. I do think that one thing that it has happened to galleries, and this is. Um, happening to everyone, quite frankly, is with the hollowing out of press um, and and media, what happens is that a lot of that business now has to be taken care of by um, galleries. So like there's a lot of increased costs with producing catalogs, for example, and producing social media and managing communications Um, in a way that's like, I think much more resource heavy than it was before, because we used to have an industry that dealt with things in a more efficient manner than we do now, where all those responsibilities are sort of passed on to um, a gallery um, or a small business. 
that uh, now has has those costs. It's two things, right? Like it's gentrification costs, it's rent. It's also like there's rising media costs. Like I think the cost of running a gallery is going up. Yeah, I would agree. And I just, you know, for me, I, I'm glad we have Nat here to talk about um, Flux Factory and the kind of situation that they found themselves in with having a, a permanent space. And I think it's a perfect kind of story for our podcast where we have art, politics, and money, <laughs> all three of them very, very relevant and particularly focused on, on real estate. And Flux Factory has been around for a very long time and moved from a number, you know, of, of is, is, is sort of witnessed a number of cycles of kind of gentrification. I mean, oh, the yeah. transformation of Long Island City is is incredibly dramatic. You know, when I moved yeah. here, there was like the Citibank building and now it is, um, you know, filled with luxury high rises and towers. So, yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, the first space in 1994 was uh, on Kent Ave in Williamsburg. Uh, it's actually, I don't think enough people know that it later became a uh, secret project robot and Monster Island basement and was kind of, this yeah notorious way but uh i i think i don't think i realized that yeah yeah uh for whatever reason secret project robot doesn't point out that they were the second art space uh in that building Uh, it's totally lost to history for some reason but uh yeah for until 2001 and there are some gnarly stories of what it was like back then including the um i suppose you could call it an eviction process where the landlord you know, realized Williamsburg was happening around the year 2000. And I think he actually came in with a sledgehammer and like literally was like, get out. (laughs) And then somehow he ended up with another art space uh, for, you know, I think now they're, they're cashing in, but it took him quite a while to, to cash in on the Williamsburg thing, whoever that jerk owner was. There's a lot of crazy lore. I'm a keeper of the lore. I've only worked at Flux Factory for like seven and a half, eight years now, but it was different in the 90s. And our and our block in Queens was certainly different. Uh, you know, what was it, 15 years? We've been here since 2002 in Queens. So wow. 20 years. Yeah. I can do math. Anyway, <laughs> well, right, I'm not going to wax too far on... <laughs> on that though well i think you know it'd be great for our listeners just to give um a little bit of that like history of how flux factory flux factory started and how it supports artists right now through its residency program and you know programming activities sure yeah i mean and it really is just a um a story of like gradually maturing and growing up even if you don't want to necessarily grow up that's what happens to people that's what happens to organizations so uh originally in 94 it was um just a group of friends i believe they were all actually fellow students and they kind of got this totally cheap um warehouse on the waterfront um and at that point there was really nobody over in that particular area of Williamsburg it was um you know really abandoned um and um they i think it kind of started just as parties and then evolved into kind of more performance and evolved into a cultural space and, you know, it, it was actually a destination in the 90s. Um, you know, it was it was a certain time in that part of the city and, and Flux Factory was definitely a part of that. 
Um, and eventually, yeah, as I was mentioning, we got priced out, had to move to Sunnyside. A year or two later, the MTA took the space through eminent domain. We ended up at our current space in 2009. Um, and we've, uh, you know, been there ever since we just purchased the building. Um, and it was always this like collective thing, this informal thing, but I actually think the process of displacement forced, um, the organization to professionalize each time. And so when we first moved to Queens, it was like, okay, now this is an exhibition space. It's not just like every Thursday we have, you know, whoever is on, um, you know, it, 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 you know, it was at that point had been a formal nonprofit for a few years. And so the, the exhibition program was begun. And then the second time we were displaced, uh, it became a formal residency where it wasn't just this collective of friends, um, you know, who were indefinitely um, at the space, but there was an application process. Um, and there were also kind of some partnerships uh, to place certain residencies. Um, and, you know, I think there was definitely like imposter syndrome um, as these projects were, you know, first being put on paper with capital letters at the beginning of, of residency and stuff like that. Um, but eventually, you know, I, it, it surprises me even sometimes that like we're legitimate. I'm like, what? Cause it's such a small thing we got going on here and still very much the collective spirit and the artistic leadership is such a huge part of the DNA here that's just we're never going to be rid of it it's just we have to be this this weird collective but um you know somehow it's like life you know you wake up every every day and eventually you're like holy crap I'm a grown-up and this is my this is what my life turned into and somehow we are a um you know, one of the longest running artists and residencies and exhibition spaces in, in New York City at this point. Yeah, you guys have definitely survived uh, Williamsburg, which I think, you know, has like a handful of, of galleries, <laughs> maybe. I think Pierogi might have moved back there during the pandemic yeah. uh, after closing their Lower East Side space. I'm sort of curious, uh, you know, if it started out, you know, sort of like a party space. And by the time I moved to Williamsburg, I would go to like those Rubelod parties that were over by the Williamsburg yeah. Bridge. Similar kind of spirit. Totally. And, uh, you know, I think Secret Project Robot had already opened at that point. And, you know, that was my experience of the warehouse where Flux may have started. Um, and shifting from that to this kind of grown up phase, what is, you know, you you. We invited you on hopefully to talk more about the purchase of the building and gaining a kind of stable space where you can really plan for the future. But what does Flux Factory look like now um, that it is sort of grown up and that you're an official, you're an institution now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, geez, what does it mean to be an institution? So, I mean, we manage a hell of a grants calendar and, you know, we do a lot of the, the fiduciary stuff. I love this word because it just, uh, it, it, people who don't know, it means something very simple, but it, it seems to uh, everybody, it glazes over their heads if, if they don't know what that means. Uh, but, you know, we manage it. I, I did not get into art spaces to do any of the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> I will put it that way. That really the reason that I started doing these things maybe 12 years ago was so that I could work with artists, support artists, see their music, see their art, 
get to know them. <laughs> Obviously, that was a big part of it. And just enjoy it. And somehow now I'm just buried in spreadsheets, buried in grants, buried in reports, um, you know, and that, I guess that in a nutshell, and it is all for the sake of those same things and those same things are going on, mm -hmm. but uh, behind the, the Wizard of Oz, um, you know, uh, the, be, be behind the veil there, there's... Um, a lot of spreadsheets. Is that what professionalization really means? I don't, I think, I think I just gave my own definition of it. Do you, I, I like, like, that, do you <laughs> like the spreadsheets? Do you like managing that? Like, is that something that you thought like? Um, I took to it in a way that I didn't think I would. My biggest weakness when I was hired at Flux Factory is I had never written a successful grant before. I had been doing some <laughs> art journalism and, and, you know, I am a, right. a person of letters but um, <laughs> I, I took to it, I mean, I had to, so I guess I'm lucky that I like it. And I do have to say that this, you know, a Flex Factory, we, we recently got um, uh, money to purchase our current space and to purchase a new building. And it was, you know, the process that we used through the city to get that money was not, um, you know, whining and dining one percenters. It was literally like a Sudoku puzzle that was like five dimensional. And when you solve it, um, there's $5 million. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. This is, this is the intersection of art politics and money that we really want to talk about because it involves yes. city, local city politics, how you navigated city politics to get access to this money that I think a lot of arts organizations and artists um, we'd love to just anything you can share about that process, working with the city um, to get access to that money. Um, you know, that would be wonderful, I think, for other artists to know. And I, Patty, I think that was one of the main things you wanted to talk about is that this is one of the ways that the city could really support art, artists and arts organizations by providing space <laughs> and, and, you know, through, through uh, access to money. Yeah, I mean, um, and I do totally feel the same way that this sort of policy is the most progressive thing that the city could be doing in, toward, in terms of uh, giving tax dollars to small organizations. Um, and it is like a super bureaucratic, um, kind of boring process to go through. Um, but basically, you know, so the, the nutshell of how this works is that um, nonprofits, all kinds of nonprofits, not just cultural nonprofits, receive money from the city for operations, for programs, for staff, for you know those kind of ongoing things, but also for investments in assets. In the same way that the city builds a hospital, that they build a road, um, you know, they also invest in cultural institutions, and most commonly. Uh, what the and this is called a D, the DCA capital team capital. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I for someone who's kind of a whatever socialist quasi Marxist person, I sure I well <laughs> Marx wrote a book called Capital, so we're yeah. fixated on the term, I guess. Um, but at any rate, most of what they do is um, renovating and building. Um, so for an organization, you know, let's say um, the Met uh, is building a new wing, mm -hmm. the city is able to invest in that. Um, also a lot of equipment. So like HVAC systems, um, PA systems, uh, you know, computer systems, so they can do 
that sort of gear as well. That's kind of their bread and butter is those two kinds of projects. Um, and I mean, at this point, uh, Chocolate Factory before Flux Factory, um, you know, did the kind of project that we did. And Flux Factory is now the second organization in um, at least, I would say, 30 years um, where a, the city has um, purchased a, cult a building on behalf of a, of a cultural institution. Um, and so, you know, Chocolate Factory is on their title you know, they own it. Flux Factory owns our building. We are regulated, heavily regulated. You know, we can't just turn it into a Starbucks. Um, but it it, it um, was a bit of an off the menu item. Um, you know, like when you go to a restaurant and like, you know, the chef has got something special out, out back, even though it's not on the menu. That is a little bit like what these acquisitions are. Um, for other... Um, you know, I think for for uh, homeless shelters, for health, for uh, food pantries, for all kinds of other um, charities and nonprofits around the city, it is more common uh, for them to purchase property. Um, but for uh, one reason or another, um, or, uh, many reasons, I'm sure, uh, it, it's exceedingly uncommon for nonprofits. But the problem is that... Um, if you don't own your property or somehow have very long-term, you know, you could have a 30-year lease and the city will do business with you for the capital projects. But um, these mo almost all small art spaces don't have a shot at this pool of funding at all. Um, and it is, you know, there's a lot of good reason for it because if the city is going to uh, re renovate your space, they need to be assured that those assets are going to stay in the public interest for the life of those assets. So, you know, frequently 15 years or more. Uh, but if you have a five-year lease, you can't guarantee it. Um, that could just, you know, the owner could not renew your lease. And then all of a sudden the city's spent public funds on something that's now privately owned. So it's a misuse of tax dollars. Um, and so. How did you get around that? Well, acquisition is the only way yeah. because once <laughs> that is the one thing that a small space that is facing displacement that doesn't have a solid footing that could be going out of business every year that is the one thing that you're eligible for you know i think one thing that's really interesting and this is just occurring to me as you're as you were talking that um because cultural spaces have short-term leases in most cases or can't get access to a 10 or 15 or 30 year lease, they can't access this pool of money. But if landlords understood that if they gave a 10 or 15 year long-term lease to a nonprofit organization, that organization might be able to get access to city funds to improve long-term spaces, you know, and potentially provide a steady revenue stream for, for landlords. And, you know, I think that's another sort of thing that would be very good for um, activists and organizers who are pushing for commercial uh, rent controls and, you know, um, at least <laughs> some, some legal protections for commercial tenants right now. I think there's like a bill in city council and being considered by the state for commercial rent stabilization at the very least. But you know, yeah. that you, you're, you're talking about an avenue to which um, that kind of stability could get access, you know, create more access to to tax dollars and funding that could benefit both cultural institutions and and landlords who own these properties. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is a policy that exists, however common or uncommon it is, or however likely it is to happen again. This is a policy that they can do every year through the, this is just an annual funding process. You just apply every year. Whereas I think you were referring, you know, the, the commercial rent control that you were talking about, um, there have been a lot of people trying to get the city council to pass this and it just has never happened um, no, for one not. reason it ends. <laughs> and I suspect that commercial rent control in New York city, I am not very, um, you know, bullish on that happening at the moment. So here's, yeah, here's the thing that the city can do. They can, they could save a space routinely if they found the right applicant, if the applicant was in that special position to actually pull this off you know, the, the, so can you, the foundation so already exists it, for this. What What is right. the name of the the grant or the process that you went through? Like, what's the what's the is the application name like four three two one B or oh. is it something like? <laughs> yeah, and uh, there, I can give you some like yeah R two D two type stuff like that. So um, yep. it's called capital funding. So if you look up Department capital of Cultural funding. Affairs. New York City capital funding. You'll mm-hmm. find um, I actually have up right here, uh, you know, a very helpful slideshow to explain to you uh, how it's going. And by the way, this is the largest pool of public funding uh, for it's it's larger than the operational dollars. Uh, and I got it here. And in in the COVID year, uh, they spent ninety five million on uh, mm. cultural, and that was actually I think that was super. I I wish. I, I wish I had the one from the prior year before COVID because I think it was, you know, obviously the city's budget got slashed a lot. But um, in, it, this is taxpayer dollars. And, you know, to me, if the largest pool of taxpayer dollars for culture is going only to organizations who already have sustainability, either through owning their building or, you know, maybe some long-term lease, sweetheart deal, something like that. That to me, um, you can see then why I'm saying it's more, it, it's very progressive for the city to use these funds to to hit the, the smallest organizations. I'm, I'm personally one of these people who believes tax dollars should be um, distributed to the, you know, that the focus is on the, 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 the poor who need it the most. That's, that's yeah, personally so, my yes. view of what tax should be just, doing. <laughs> so, so just to clarify very sort of quickly, within that capital funding um, application process, you mentioned that the acquisitions is sort of the off-menu item. If somebody was had a, a property and they were a nonprofit organ, you know, operating out of that space, how might they go about putting acquisition on the menu or their application? Yeah. I mean, so first you have to have done business with the city for a while. So I think there's like some bare minimum thresholds that are already difficult. So, I mean, um, you should have done at least three years of operating contracts um, with the city. And that's sort of like you got to date before you can get engaged, you know, that the city has Mm -hmm. to see that you can reliably organize these programs. Um, So so operating contracts just means like you got a grant from the city or does it mean something else? Yeah. Like department of cultural affairs. What do they call it? The CDF funding, the cultural development fund. I think they call that. That's like the normal for, um, you know, to fund your exhibition. Okay. Fund staff and normal operating costs and stuff like that. 
And there, and there are quite a, a few others. I mean, you have to have the capacity to pull this project off because this took over three years of Flux Factory working on this. Uh, this took a hell of a lot of lawyering from the city. A whole lot of different departments were involved with this. And we also were extremely lucky to have an owner who wanted to sell, who was willing to sell at market price, and who was willing to be very patient with us. Um, so, you know, there are, I don't mean to, I like, this is not free money. <laughs> we had to work like hell for this. And, you know, I, I mean, flux is super small, but we have existed for almost 30 years. So, you know, I, I don't mean to, you know, get people's hopes up that, um, it's hard. Yeah, no, we it's know hard this is. We know yeah, this is yeah. very difficult. So, with that hard, disclaimer, though, with that disclaimer, right. let, let it is yeah, yeah. possible. Which yes. I think is sort of the the wonderful thing if you if you have yeah. an organization organization that's been around, reached a certain size, has sort of proven its um, programming, and has those contracts with the city. It, it's just it is so unusual that um, we were very excited to kind of hear that you were able to navigate you know, the politics uh, and, you know, within city, city government to get access to this, to this money. So, mm -hmm. um, so how, so how much of that share is sort of, I think. Yeah. Important. And, and there is um, a, a lobbying process for this in addition mm -hmm. to the, um, the application process itself, because there are three entities that make the decision here. It's your council person, it's your borough mm -hmm. president, and then it's, you know, for culturals, the um, commissioner of the Department of Cultural Affairs on behalf of the mayor. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, um, the mayor is frequently, um, you know, more aloof from wanting to fund specific organizations. So I think places that want to do this um, really have to talk to their council person and their borough president and have a relationship with them, you know, have those people care about and understand the impact that your organization has made in your neighborhood. Um, and then they're the ones who they get the vote. They're, they're all yeah. sitting there in a room deciding who gets funded or not. Um, so, so this has been an ongoing project, but I'm definitely curious if you could tell us just a little bit about the different, um, you know, council people, council persons or uh, DCA commissioners that you worked with? Because I, I believe this started under Tom Finkelpearl's, you know, watch. And I don't know if you worked with Gonzalo, but yeah, who are the who are the folks you had to kind of lobby uh, to, to sort of make this happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Jimmy Van Bramer has been our council person and he's, he's only got a few weeks left for like 12 years now, I think, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he was born in the district and really has his feet on the ground. So... He already knew a lot about what we're doing. He also, we're very fortunate. He's like leads culture. Um, it's like the culture, uh, what do you call it? Committee for the city council. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it just so happens that we're in this place where our council person has that passion project and it's, you know, different council people have different concerns. Uh, so he was aware of us and cared about culture in the first place. And I do have to say, I mean, if I could have been a fly on the wall in a lot of these meetings, but I'm certainly given to understand that Jimmy really did, that we are very indebted to his his leadership and helping to push this thing through. But I mean, Tom Finkelpearl was there as well. And he uh, totally, you know, 
he was this golden god to me when I first took my job. And I I imagine he had no freaking idea who I am. We're just these little <laughs> things. But he knows an absurd amount, a totally yes. ridiculously detailed amount about like freaking every little thing going on in the city. And there was it's crazy. <laughs> it's it's nuts. He was he was talking, he was like reviewing Flux Factory exhibitions to me, like more than I knew about them. Like, and he did. So it was wild when, when he got really? on to talking to me one, one day. Um, yeah, he, he was, you know, had a little bit of extra time, but he also, I mean, Flux Factory had done a residency at the Queens Museum in 2001, mm-hmm. um, you know, while he was the executive director there. And, uh, you know, that was, there was actually a lot of mischief on that. I mean, I'll just say one thing, which is that they, they snuck up onto the roof and they thought it was in the LaGuardia flight path. And so they roller painted on the roof of the Queens museum, the phone number for their voicemail. So they could try and create contact with the people in the planes above and like other things that Tom didn't like so, wait so. wait wait who's 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 voicemail the artist voicemail the flux factory the flux, flux factory phone number they 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 <laughs> painted it huge on they like snuck up onto the roof and they did like other stuff that was like not all that professional so i think um you know tom uh you know is somebody who understands that artists are sometimes insane people and also understands that artists um you know, do grow up and mature. Um, I remember when I told him as we were applying, you have to have a little bit of cash in the bank. And I I referred to our strategic reserve, which is basically just means some savings. And he was like, Flux Factory has a strategic reserve. And like, I just remember, <laughs> and I I was just, I, you know, anyway, we we came a little ways since, since the 2001 thing. Um, but at any rate, I, I'm going to like, you know, wax anecdotal too much, but, um, you know, there, there was, you know, I think Tom was well aware of what we were doing. Jimmy was well aware of what we were doing and, you know, actually Melinda Katz, um, and, and, uh, Richard Lee in particular on her team, who was the one really, um, working on this project. And who are, really were great too. For our listeners who are Melinda Katz and, uh, Uh, wait, Richard. Yeah, M- Melinda Katz had been uh, was borough president at that time, and yeah. recently left. She was elected uh, district attorney, and is and she is you know not um, the the progressives don't love her. She she defeated Tiffany Caban uh, for DA. If I'm yeah. um, correct me if I'm wrong there, and uh, you know she also um, was uh, she thought it was great that Amazon was coming to the neighborhood. So we we actually it was kind of interesting because uh, we found ourselves partnering with and working with the elected official who we had to work with, who I actually personally thought there were a lot of great things about her, but um, there were just these totally divisive issues occurring right at the moment that we were um, laying the seeds for this project. So it was, um, you know, it's it's wonderful to be able to enthusiastically say like Jimmy Van Bramer love him as a guy, love his policies. But you, it, it is actually interesting interacting with, uh, even for people who think that government should be doing a more active role in society, it, it is a little bit odd working with the city sometimes because um, it's a complicated partnership. <laughs> 
you know, the values and the and the policies aren't always the same. And I, I myself, yeah. I, I don't particularly think that it's I think that nonprofits should be basically politically non-aligned. Um, you know, when I say positive things about any one person, this is just me speaking as an individual. Like I feel actually pretty strongly that Flux Factory shouldn't really be lobbying for some particular policy for some particular politician. Um, well, you know, every I, institution I, I out there is getting politicized. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't disagree with that too too much. In this, like legally, uh, most nonprofits, particularly museums, can't say endorse a specific politician, which I think is. Yeah. very fair, you know, considering you might be working with a Republican or, you know, a very, say, moderate Democrat. Um, but, you know, institutions can lobby for policies. And, you know, Jimmy Van Bramer was one of the sort of co-sponsors or the sponsor of the Small Business Job Survival Act, which would have provided, you know, some at least commercial rent um, negotiation. And it was really disappointing to go to like a city council hearing on that and have Corey Johnson essentially just say, we're just going to put this back in committee after a full day of hearing, you know, and testimony. Um, and that, you know, I guess that would be my only disagreement is that I do think it's in the yeah, best no, interest no, no. Of, of art spaces to try to support commercial rent stabilization or policies like, yeah. you know, SBJSA. Yeah, no, no. And I mean, I should probably contradict myself directly here and say, like, well, first of all, uh, you are allowed legally to lobby a little bit. There's as a nonprofit, there's just kind of a threshold of how much you're supposed to lobby. But then imagine a world in which charities are not um, making, you know, their own interests know, known in the political sphere or in which they're not advocating for the things that are right, because right. charities and their values you know, are so important for our society. So if you can imagine them being um, completely, uh, you know, whatever, just, uh, you know, neutered, I, I can't think of a better <laughs> term, sorry, uh, in the political, political sphere, yeah. that that seems um, inappropriate to me as well. Right. So it actually, I, I don't know, you know, I generally think a lot of times in kind of uh, dialectical terms where I, I fully believe both opposites of a side of point. And, and so it, it actually has been quite interesting to navigate when it's right for Flux Factory and for me to um, be political. Yeah. I mean, can you, uh, you know, Patty, I know you wanted to talk about this a little bit too, is that, you know, that the Amazon development did that pose a significant threat to Flux? I mean, because that, that seemed like yes. a very clear uh, moment where you might have to take a side, yes or no, against a development yes. like that. It seems like the forces you were alluding to earlier might have been, was that was that Amazon? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we had been, at that point, we had a non-bonding contract with our owner for sale and the city had allocated the four, uh, $4 million was, was what we got our building for. Um, and so the money was there. We were negotiating this binding contract. Then all of a sudden Amazon comes into the scene and actually, you know, it, it they, the, the owner was a, a group of people, you know, it was kind of a family owned thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them were trying to renegotiate up. And so that, you know, our, that might've just gone belly up at that point, if they had insisted on more money, um, you know, and I don't know, maybe even if Amazon had come in, I 
have some doubts that it would have actually impacted the value of our of you know the sale value but at any rate they didn't come and and we kept with that um dollar amount but there was this super funny moment where um you know flux factory has to do an annual benefit we do like an art auction a silent art auction oh we honored uh, patty one time uh yeah. quite a, quite a while ago um, and we honored Melinda Katz, um, because, you know, just, we were very grateful for her partnership on this project and it was like, well, this is the right year. And, you know, yeah. Honoring Melinda Katz. And, um, also, uh, it was the real estate investment cooperative. And then like a week before our benefit that we have to do to make our vow, like we gotta do this thing. Uh, Melinda Katz comes out in favor of Amazon. We're hosting the benefit event at uh, Plaxall Gallery in in uh, in you know Hunters Point South in Long Island City, which was gonna be Amazon. And yeah. like literally, you know, um, you know whatever my beliefs are, whatever Flux Factory advocates for, whatever to that. But certainly, there are many people at you know in Flux Factory's uh, community who were very anti Amazon. And so there's all these people at our at our auction with like and someone was trying to convince me to cancel it or to like kick melinda cats off of the event and i'm like dude like okay like we literally are disagreeing about one issue here i understand this is in the news right now but you literally like you're asking me to kick our honoree off of the event one week before it happens <laughs> and she just allocated you know like I mean, I'm not it's, saying this yeah. is some kind of quid pro quo, but it would be a little bit rude, um, you know, for someone yeah. that you're partnering with to just kick them off like that. There were a few protesters in front and I was like, oh, my God, you're literally like, isn't that our people? Like we we frequently have people like screen printing, mm -hmm. protesting flyers at Flex Factory. Yeah. And I'm like, I, man, I, this is a strange position to yes, be in. It's not it's not that surprising. I mean, it's just part of the 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 tension that we find ourselves, artists find themselves in, and not just artists and cultural institutions. I mean, there have been a, a number of protests at the uh Museum of Chinese Art in downtown uh, lower Manhattan because they took like $35 million from the city in exchange for supporting the prison, you know, building project. And so there are a lot of like the Godzilla collective withdrew from that show yep. in protest of that, you know, and it's sort of a kind of form of um, culture washing to a degree. Like if, if, if you accept these jails, we'll give you this money, shut up, you know, and just don't, don't protest this. And, you know, I could almost imagine a scenario where, uh, you know, if, if Flux had gotten really upset or the artist had gotten really upset and tried to cancel Melinda Katz's appearance, that if the Amazon thing had gone through, they might have just said, look, we'll buy your building. Don't say anything bad about this. You know, we'd like you on board with this. And my, my friend Jenny Dubnow is part of the Artist Studio Affordability Project. And yep. we, like we presented at Flux at one point, you know, she's not a fan of like the Plaxall Gallery and the way that some of those buildings in that sort of area of Long Island City, some are city-owned properties, there's public land, and it's all getting sort of wrapped up. The, the Amazon deal was the most sort of egregious version of it, but there is an idea that that's just going to become commercial development and sort of luxury housing, and there are residents in the community that proposed, um, uh, you know, how to keep that in, in sort of in public hands and create public space. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. There's an old uh, school building yep. or a department of DOE. education building mm -hmm. that they're trying to uh, 
form a CLT. And yeah, it's right up in there. And that building is humongous, man. It the is, air conditioners is. popping out of that thing. Those are <laughs> big air conditioners. I'm like, man, if you can imagine a, that being the new five points or something like that, maybe right. a little bit safer yeah, <laughs> than yeah, five points yeah. was. But there, we um, know there are benefits to having, you know, up to code, you know, things for spaces. And, and yeah. you know, because I know Flux is operated in sort of the margins over the years. Um, and part of that process of maturation and growing up is making sure spaces are safe, you know, and they should be. We shouldn't have to, you know, be, be, hosting residencies or, or, you know, in in spaces that are just physically unsafe, you know? Oh yeah. And I mean, of course, ghost ship was the the big example Mm -hmm. of that. And there were some Mm -hmm. others back in the day um, that were examples of this, but, you know, as much as I um, am like just so enamored of and trying to keep the spirit alive of this era of New York, where artists were, uh, you know, using post-industrial spaces as they saw fit um, I think that is, you know, mixed use New York is is to me unlocks the spirit of so much of what makes this, uh, you know, in lots of cities really important where the, um, you know, the conflation of workspace, uh, frequently of living space, um, of public event space, when you conflate all those things in a place where the artists themselves are defining the architecture and letting those architectural norms flow together, that unlocks some sort of primordial creativity that, you know, if you have a separate you know, studio that you go to, if you have a separate gallery that you go to, if you have a separate restaurant that you go to, if you have a separate home that you go to, the walls and the space between those literally, to me, you know, architecture is psychology. And so you literally are separating those parts of yourself that are inherently interconnected. And when architecturally those things are interconnected, I think then something, you got a magic formula. Anyway, I won't I won't go too much deeper down that rabbit hole. You can maybe tell <laughs> that uh, but um, that I've thought about that for a minute. But, um, you know, the, certainly the downside of that, as you were saying, is that artists a lot of times shouldn't be making their own you know, post-industrial spaces. They don't know what the hell they're doing. And one of the things I am grateful for in this new era of New York City is that the buildings are a lot safer you know, like people generally, as as compared to when I first moved to the city, people are, are, are not in fire traps as much as they used to be. They have more like windows in their bedroom to see actual natural light. Um, so, you know, for all that was lost, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, Flux Factory as well. One of the things about purchasing this building is that we're able to invest a lot in, uh, you know, we already had been you know, let me say, investing particularly in a lot of safety stuff around the building over the, you know, we've been here since 2009 in this particular building. But um, now it's really possible to make those long-term investments. And, you know, for instance, during the pandemic, we were able to take on a 30-year loan from the Small Business Association and to repay its relatively small monthly payments to be paid over 30 years. And, we can invest in our space uh, in that way. That was never possible before, of course. Yeah, I mean, so, I think that's that's fantastic. Go, go ahead, Patty. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just wondering. I mean, I know they, um, so Hyperallergic did it, ran an article yep. on uh, 
the flex factory and the money that you got. And I noted that you're fundraising for 50,000 for, um, I think to cover administrative costs and, um, like a, a new programming director. Um, yes. like <laughs> still like, um, where are you on the fundraising with that? Is that like, I like, um, the way that I see flux and like your particular skill set and all the rest is that you speak artists, but you also speak like grant world, you know, like you, it seems like you're really, really very good at navigating that, um, oh, in a way you. that like most people just, just aren't, um, what, what is involved with raising that, um, additional money? Right. Uh, well, and, you know, maybe I should first say, because I don't think we focused on it too much in this podcast, that in addition to purchasing Flux Factory's current space that we've rented for so long, we're also starting up a new space uh, that's kind of in that neighborhood that Jenny Dub now, uh, you know, mm. that you were mentioning earlier in Hunters Point South, where there's a ton of new everything popping up there. Uh, so, but we're starting a new venue there. We are um, on the ground floor of a space that's got, uh, um, you know, it, it's apartments. It's like a 33 story. Oh, is that, is that one of the spaces where if you provide like a community service, I mean, I guess how did, is it, is it new construction yeah. that you're getting access to? So, yeah. So I can talk, I'll talk a little bit about like mm -hmm. that plan and, and then, but I do want to return to Patty's point about um, mm -hmm. how the hell we're piecing together our, our fundraising stuff. Um, so yeah, so, uh, um, originally this is different than frequently a place will rezone and they'll be like, Hey, if I can build up X many stories, sure. I'll do a little bit of the mandatory inclusionary housing. This is a little bit different. Um, in my understanding, um, on the Hunters Point South waterfront, actually, uh, Bloomberg purchased a lot of this, uh, to get the Olympics bid. Back, remember, like, yeah. you know, when Cristo yeah. uh, was up in Central mm -hmm. Park and all yeah. that. So I don't think it was 100% of it was bought at that point, but a lot, but at any rate, they bought up a lot of land on the waterfront uh, for the Olympic bid that never happened. And then it's publicly owned and it's all contiguous up and down, you know, all the way from the Pepsi Cola sign down to where you're basically at Greenpoint. Um, and you know, it's affordable housing is this huge issue. And so the city was like, all right, we're going to build a fuck ton of houses over here. Um, but because it was city owned in the first place, um, there is a much greater proportion of public services there. And so I, you know, there, there are some, you know, private partnerships, there are some private developers, mm -hmm. there are some private banks involved um, in order to actually build the buildings in order to line up all the financing and stuff like that. But there's also, you know, there's like a new library there. Um, there's a new elementary school being built, the waterfront there, they were kind of doing storm resilient stuff. And at this point it's um, I think it's one of the better parks in New York city. Period. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, it it's it so beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Um, it's, it's Definitely sounds like a healthier version of Hudson Yards, you know, if we're talking about public totally, private partnerships. Totally. And it's not what I would want in an ideal world, but it's mm -hmm. honestly, it's a better 
deal for the public than I've actually heard of in another neighborhood. And the affordable housing, I forget how many, like, I think it's hundreds of thousands of, of residential units they're building, but I believe 80% of it, 85% of it is like permanently rent restricted, um, you know, at, at various levels. So, you know, of course, mm -hmm. people want to critique AMI, you can super do that. That's the law of the land that they're following. But at the very least, I think only like maybe 15% of the apartments around there are market rate. Um, and also, in addition to the library, the school, the, the parkland, there's a cultural space. Somebody's yeah. got to run it, guys. Somebody's got to do it. So we're going to take one for the team and uh, and and run a cultural space <laughs> in this neighborhood. Um, so, you know, and it, this is actually permanently owned by Flux Factory. Our next door neighbors are going to be a boathouse. Um, it's right on a boat launch. We're like really right there at the intersection of the East River and the Newtown Creek. It's a stone's throw from there. Um, and anyway, that's our new space. So, I mean, for anybody who does not know that much about uh, the Newtown Creek, the Newtown Creek is like one of the most polluted creeks in oh, yeah. all of the U.S. It's a super fun site. Be careful. Don't drink wa your water from the Never. Newtown Creek. Like, Especially you know, after you, it rains. You, it. It's, <laughs> it's sort of a dangerous place. I don't know if you... Um, this is sort of an aside, but um, just maybe see how it relates. But there's this uh, movie that Marcin Ramaki uh, uh, produced called DIY Brooklyn, which was about the gentrification of Brooklyn. And, um, you know, it's sort of in the documentary style of, let's say, like Helvetica or something, right? Um, and it just follows artists and um, their kind of path through uh, primarily Williamsburg. But they had this, like, um, segment with Amy Silman, who's talking about like what artists will do. And she's like, oh, you know, this will, when, when all this falls, like artists will be using the marble countertops as their like palettes to mix paint and all the rest. And there's something about like flux factory in the midst of like, I know you're, you said that you're in the, this like sort of cultural district and a lot of it is city owned and all the rest but there is a like surrounding you is like ridiculously high rents like the tech industry like all lives there it commutes into the city super easily because it's like a straight line to google and all the rest and like you know you guys yeah it's a bit of an I odd feel, thing <laughs> i just i kind of love it because like I, to me, I mean, one of the reasons I really love Flux is that it's like all of the creative energy that I associate and love with artists and like why I spend my time doing this work, like that is what Flux embodies, like a hundred percent, like uh, all of the like weirdest shit that you wouldn't think. Like I remember going to a city council, <laughs> I went to a city council meeting, um, where there, uh, or no, I don't know. I don't think it was a city council meeting. It was like a, a I don't know what it was, like one of those local um, uh, community board, uh, or, community yeah. board meetings where like, um, you know, I was given, I was going to talk uh, about like the small business affordability act, or whatever. And like, there was somebody there from flux who was like, 
I'd really like to like grow the, these mushrooms, this like special garden and the train tracks. And you guys had already started, oh. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's my own Hogshead Ranch. You must be. Yes. Yeah. And, no, which I visited. Place. It it literally got me through the pandemic. Oh, that um, place is bonkers. And it, and like the big concern at the city at, at the community board meeting was that they weren't going to be growing like magic mushrooms. <laughs> I know because yeah, Gil Lopez does look like that. Yeah, it's your first, I mean, me too. People, I, well, you have, people you have joke very... around with me about, yeah, I'm like professional. Hey, I'm professional. But like, you, <laughs> you know, but there's you a little shaman like, action going on. <laughs> Yeah, I, like, once the podcast is done, we'll talk more about this. <laughs> <laughs> but there's like no end of like really like weird, exciting stuff that comes out of uh, Flex Factory. I mean, you also do these like you did these like weird cooking uh, competitions that I was a judge sure. for at one point that like uh, that was really fun. Like you guys are always doing like just crazy shit and it's really fun and to see you guys in this area like just feels like a kind of needed infusion into like what I, I feel is a real kind could become like a real um, without somebody like you could be a real cultural vacuum. Well, yeah, you, you know, like there's also, a real homogenous. Yeah. It's yeah. already very kind of uh, homogenous there. Yeah. So. Did you hear that, that Eric Adams said that New York is becoming boring and that, you know, he needs to revitalize it. Um, and, you know, there is there is something to be said about that, that, you know, if it's all just Google tech employees and tech bros, there isn't a space for the weird, for, you know, that kind of energy in New York. Yeah, it could become incredibly boring, you know, and that's not that's not something that I want to support, you know. Yeah, I mean, I got all kinds of crazy hairbrand schemes that are probably not very practical of of doing some real weird stuff. Because if we're right next to a boat launch on the water, I'm thinking about uh -oh. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about the stuff that like Swoon, you know, used to do back in the day. You know, I'm like Duke Riley. Duke yeah. Riley. I'm like, <laughs> oh man, like what are we not going to bring it out into the park? Like, obviously, there will be parades to say the least, you know, <laughs> Patty so, loves parades. <laughs> you oh, know, I, do. <laughs> I think you had an organization called parades. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be, um, you know, I, I, one of my big focuses right now with our building is trying to figure out how to soundproof it so well, because I know whether or not we try, like, we got to button up a little bit maybe to not piss off the neighbors so much in this place, but like we have to soundproof the crap out of that ceiling because there's no way we're ever going to be normal regardless of, you know, what neighborhood we find ourselves in. I, so. I like this, like planning ahead so that like I, you have, <laughs> you have a building that like just accounts for the fact that you're still going to fuck shit up. Yeah, I'm like, oh my god, I can already picture the the noise complaints in the three one. I'm like, oh man, we're gonna be. Yeah, well, you know, know I mean, you guys. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that you're. It's not like the shed part two over yes. there. You know, I'd rather I take flux any day of the week than you know Alex Poots and you know this kind of like super formalized, you know, immersive things with these monster budgets, but it, it's sort of dreadful. And that, that whole scene sort of sucks, you know, and I'm glad that Flux is able to, you know, um, 
make, a, you know, if you have to soundproof the ceiling so that you can keep the kind of party DNA that this space grew from, I think that that is important, right? You know, I think, <laughs> and it's, it's really smart um, so that you yeah. can kind of maybe be a little bit of like a bug in the, the ointment of the kind of like neoliberal fantasy Perhaps. land they're building over there, right? You know, and, and, and disturb some of that with the kind of joyous energy, you know, I mean, I feel like I've been stuck in a kind of politicized space where the the joy of what art can do and the energy and that sense of community, um, there's like this other imperative to fight all of this kind of development and that that crushing boredom that you know potentially can slide in and wipe out what is interesting um, about New York. That it, it's yeah. nice to kind of have this conversation and know that you're still you know um, bringing that energy into a space where it's like high-end little restaurants on the park where you can get like a $15 hamburger, you know, like, mm. you know, that Which kind of You stuff. can find me there too. I, I, occasionally. I, will, I will drink a, a $19 cocktail. I will totally. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm so glad that I got to see an era of New York that's no longer here really, because it, it really informs how me and Flex Factory are trying to navigate a city that just is totally different now. And there are just inevitable things that are happening. The waterfront inevitably is going to uh, have a ton of housing. It's completely out of our control. And, you know, also just even though we were able to stay in place in this particular building, if we had the same kind of um, motto that we used to have, where it's just not depending on anyone else, not partnering with anyone else, just completely whatever individualistic not thinking about the professionalism or the future at all like like um sorry i just got a text message so i got a little distracted um but you know we had to figure out how to take that original spirit and somehow translate it into this new era figure out when is it appropriate to make compromises how can we make the best of a situation that isn't exactly how we would like it to be um, you know, and certainly partnering with the city to purchase this space rather than, um, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, the way that it happened with Meow Wolf, um, I think, wasn't, I, I think it totally screwed up their values and just was kind of, uh, you know, that that's not what anyone would want to see Flux Factory do. I, I, I was, I remember seeing Meow Wolf like a... 15 years ago and there was like 10 people at a little tiny concert. It was a small little space like you see in any city, um, you know, and then as well with this working in this new waterfront, um, you know, development, um, you know, I do actually feel extremely grateful that there is, there are so many public services there and that, um, you know, we could have found ourselves in a situation where we would be making more compromises than we were comfortable with. Um, you know, and yeah, as you say, it's like a little bit of an odd fit. Uh, you know, we're going to be the, the oddballs in this neighborhood. But what is the solution that there's that culture has no place here or that this space that is operating out of this cultural space is like completely vapid and sanitized? So you know, you have to work with the world you're given and, you know, you have to think about where the world is actually going. So much of me wants to roll back the clock. Um, and that's where my heart is, but that's, that's not the world 
that we have. And that's not, you know, the, the way I can manage Flux Factory. So one of the things, Patty, Patty um, to go back to Patty's question about the fundraising, we were a little disappointed to learn that, like, say, the New York Times didn't cover um, the story because we, you know, it, it's a it's an important weird. story. It's an unusual situation, um, but it's a it's a there's some hopeful aspects to the story about being able to, you know, push back against precarity, get a building, um, and it would also help with the fundraising. So you know, anything that we can do to kind of help um, help you raise the fifty thousand dollars you need for the sort of new operating expenses, right. we're sort of happy to do. But I know Patty, you had some questions about like. How are you doing it? And, and you know, um, what does that look like for you guys to raise 50000 Yeah, I mean, the 50000 is actually kind of just a drop in the bucket of the overall needs that are coming up. It just seemed like an accomplishable goal mm-hmm. or maybe not, you know, kind of a stretch but accomplishable goal because, I mean, overall – I suppose um, in the overall sustainability campaign, which would take perhaps 10 years to accomplish, the goal of which is to exist indefinitely. The goal is not to grow, you know, although we are growing, the goal is not really to grow here. It's just to say the same. Um, I would say that we've raised about $5 million so far of, let's say, $10 million overall. Um, so, you know, this this crowdsourced $50,000 component is super important, um, you know, and especially as we look into like launching next year, like just our ability to like make payroll with a new staff member is really going to hinge on this. But um, Christ, I mean, what we signed up for when we now that we're like in this and we own these buildings, I'm like, Jesus Christ, there's so much responsibility ahead of us. It's like kind of terrifying. <laughs> well, I, you know, one of the only residencies that I've ever seen that had a funding model, they didn't have to fundraise every year was um, GAR, the Galveston Art Residency. They basically got smashed by one of the hurricanes that came through. Um, the the director of the space basically took that moment to say, hey, instead of just kind of piecemealing this, if you can just donate, you know, all you this, match your goodwill for helping us rebuild with some money, they were able to build an endowment that just the interest from that money mm. and you know being invested in the market or whatever was able to fund the operational budget for the entire institution. And yeah. I don't know if that's where you're going when you get 10 million and it's just sitting somewhere earning interest like the museums operate where I, you, I think the endowment know, stable. I think that would be a phase after um, after mm-hmm. this. Um, I mean, our model, um, you know, so we you know, we're going to need a bunch of continuing grants every year for income and we're going to need to continue to do fundraising events every year and then on the side of what you call earned income uh so we do affordable studios they're not free studios i think we will build in more you know now that our rent is not so high and our you know we don't have a mortgage on our building i think we'll have a lot more freedom to play around with what the rental income looks like but it's still bedrock to our ability to function and actually you know i'll i'll tell you what in order to make our mortgage at the hunters point south space um 
I, I actually do think that wedding rentals is is going to be quite important. You know, we'll do it's, one it's, wedding. It's a community yeah. event. You know, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do. Yeah. And, and so I suspect that, you know, one wedding a month might be able to pay our mortgage. Uh, for, you shouldn't. So that's, that's yeah. our, like that um, is, I think, going to be our business model, you know, in order to balance our, our budget um, once we've gotten through this, this sustainability project. But I, I suspect an endowment would be in our future. But to be frank with you, I think that might be for the executive director after me to do. Um, you know, I, I've been, I've been here maybe eight years now. And, and, you know, I can't tell you how dedicated I am to this place. I have no intention of leaving anytime soon, like believe me, but um, it's, uh, you know, the, the scale of, of what we're doing here does actually like make you just reflect on your life and like what it is that you're trying to do with your life. Um, and, you know, why I'm here on this planet. And I think maybe, um, once we've gone through um, this process, uh, you know, maybe it'll be time to to see, you know, to open up a next chapter for Flux Factory and to see um, what happens then. I don't really know, but um, this, this uh, I, I bet you $10 that this is the most important thing I ever do with my life. And maybe I should just go and do something else afterwards. And and I certainly don't want to build an endowment. I'll tell you what, because I suck with individual gifts so bad. I don't like know any rich people. I frequently, I most frequently don't actually really like wealthy people that much. And um, I have, I have presided over actually like, you know, not getting major gifts uh, from individuals at Flux Factory. I, I've, yeah, I've managed I to navigate the bureaucracy to work with the city. Um, you know, I'm a good grant writer, so I've overcompensated in other ways. But, um, you know, yeah, this, I mean, this I, doing I this, you. doing yeah. even this $50,000 fundraiser um, is it's it's tough for me in a way because the way I think about the people around me, I don't want their money. I don't want anybody's money in a, in a very important sense. Like there's nothing transactional about the way that I look at the people around me. I don't, I think it's poisonous to think of them in that way. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I certainly, you know, we're doing this fundraiser. I think we'll do well with it. I fundraise frequently, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful to many individuals who have, um, uh, you know, donated so far. But I, I think there is in in seeking particularly major individual gifts or non nonprofits, you uh, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to, um, you know, keep your soul in that process unless you were born yeah. super rich. If, if you I ever want to talk, yeah, if you, if you ever want to talk with Eric Schnell at uh, Galveston Artist Residency, he he created that endowment so he wouldn't have to continuously ask rich people mm. for their money and it, you know he did it once he went all in on that and then created enough of endowment to just run off that and not have to kind of continuously be beholden or sell his soul to kind of keep it running and it's one of the few places i know that was actually able to pull that off but it took a hurricane you know destroying part of galveston to kind of generate the attention and the goodwill mm. to even do that. So it, it is an unusual uh, situation. But yeah. Well, it's been how the, crazy how with so many spaces, a moment of crisis and being right mm -hmm. at the brink is the moment when they're saved. 
it's like the problem is the solution a lot of time for small mm-hmm. organizations. Well, that, I, I mean, I totally hear what you're saying because, I, you know, I ran RF City for a very long time. Um, we were constantly fundraising, uh, which uh, meant asking people for money, which was literally my least favorite thing in the world to do. Um, and um, it definitely saved us from going under for many, many years. But after a while, I did get really tired of it. And I couldn't do it anymore. Um but all of that said, there is a fundraiser on your like on Flex Factory's page. We'll put it in the show notes mm-hmm. um, so that donors here or listeners here who might be donors can donate if they want. I will commit a hundred dollars on this show to yeah. Flex Factory <laughs> because I totally believe in your cause and what you do and um, like. I believe that you contribute positively to New York and are like that, that flux um, is one of the things that um, is keeping New York from becoming just turning into a completely homogenous state. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I can certainly match Patty's hundred dollars, although that might be Patreon yeah. money flowing from our listeners directly to Flux Factory. There you go. I, I'm still, ch- I'm still chasing down the gallery to get paid for art handling work I did in, in like September. So true. Crazy, crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I hope my, like, uh, you know, my, my rant there where I'm reflecting on, uh, you know, my own mor- mortality and where my life is going and, and how this overall decade is so incredibly dramatic for Flux. I hope that that does not um, at all uh, lessen the point that this fundraiser is like super important and impactful and is literally going to paying artists and paying a staff member to wrangle this thing like, uh about six months from now <laughs> I also, so yeah. you know I that hundred dollars is that that can be you know if an artist gives a talk that hundred dollars goes into their pocket that's literally what this fundraiser is doing because you know the city money pays for the space to be there but they're not you know we don't have hardly anything raised at all like we're we're rich in that sense in that we got money for um the buildings but not a dime of that can be allocated towards artists, uh, you know, towards the, um, you know, paying for fees and ongoing programs and stuff like that. So it's a very funny position to be like, you know, our ship came in and we're rich in this one sense, but in another sense, it's like, holy crap, we are so broke right now. Oh my God, how are we going to do this? Well, that's, (laughs) I mean, I think that's what happens when you have these um, uh, capital projects and when you, uh, or, or like large grants in any sense, like with that money comes a lot of responsibility and a lot of additional bills. Um, you know, one thing I do think, um, like just sort of like looking at the philanthropic landscape is that when I think about like some of the most um, philanthropic, uh, the organizations that have some of like the biggest impact, they, um, I think they're often like, the source of them has been artists. You know, you look at the Warhol Foundation, like Paula Krasner, Rauschenberg, like a lot of those organizations have been set up by artists through their wealth. Um, and I would just like to put out to our audience that if um, there are any artists out there that happen 
to be particularly wealthy and like look for um, an artist-centered cause or know of a, an artist that is looking to invest in a particularly artist-centered uh, organization. I think Flex Factory is really um, like very forward-looking and, and worthy of, of um, that, uh, that support. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, and for sure, we're also going to be on um, a tear trying to raise money through private foundations and things like this. Part of the difficulty with a lot of private foundations is um, some of them, like the Warhol Foundation, it's so incredible how anyone can apply and they just invite you to apply. So many of them, um, you know, I just don't know what door to knock on. Um, it's just kind of not the background that I come from. Um, so this is going to be, yeah, like <laughs> we are actually in need of an angel a little bit. I will, I will say someone who understands our values, but someone who I just haven't met yet. <laughs> that's well, coming. I yeah, think that's coming. Yeah. That well, is my belief anyway. Yeah. So, so in the, the spirit of, um, our time and respecting everyone's time where we're sort of approaching the two hour mark, which is always surprising. Patty and I are like, we're going to keep one of these short someday. Uh, well. Patty, do you have any final questions or thoughts? I mean, I, I think I'm going to sort of walk away from this one thinking about two, how ownership can allow you and, and flex factory to kind of have sort of rent stabilized or below market rate studios. And you know, how a question I have might be how, how can you use that to um, create different levels of access for artists who may need studios, whether they're sort of seriously below market rate studios, free studios for artists who have zero income or, you know, those are things are long terms. And how do you balance that with the needs of generating some income from like studio rentals, um, you know, in the same way where yeah. I, I don't think you should feel ashamed right. at all hosting weddings because the headlands which is this very well respected residency north of san francisco pays part of their bills by hosting weddings every weekend you know and some of the artists have to keep their studios open and have drunken you know wedding guests barging oh in my saying, what is what are you doing you know and it's Hilarious. embarrassing but it's yeah. part of this kind of like faustian bargain to support the arts you know through through that so there's a yeah. long tradition of that process. Well, and there is, you know, I will say uh, we're currently in the process of updating our bylaws to kind of refocus um, or, you know, just to kind of write into stone who we are trying to serve here. Because we could be at risk, right, of going after more mid-career and established artists and uh, using this moment of institutional growth to... Um, you know, be fancier. Um, and I think that, you know, it's been so much part of our values to serve emerging artists and to serve artists who, for whatever reason, are disadvantaged um, or who really need that support. And so, um, you know, we're writing into our bylaws now stuff that, um, you know, I would just briefly say is to help ensure that we're not going to be a playground for the rich, that we're having programs where, um, you know, artists who are in need are receiving special subsidies, special fellowships, more programmatic opportunities on top of the normal residency. And we're where we're also confirming that we are focusing on emerging artists, um, you know, and that and that affordability 
is um, a core value that we have. And that's one of the main things that we want to provide, um, you know, because, yeah, we can't just be charging market rate for for uh, these studios. Perhaps we'd be able to get away with it, um, you know, but that is that like this. It, it's still very much within our soul and the kind of the zeitgeist of the organization right now. But we're trying to embed within our bylaws these values so that, you know, 50 years from now, 60 years from now, um, I suppose the bylaws could be updated, but, um, you know, and and vetoed out or whatever. But, um, you know, we're doing work to try and make sure that um, the spirit of Flux Factory and the kinds of people we serve and the kinds of needs that we serve are, are permanently that that's what we're laser focused on. That's great to hear. You guys don't want to get turned into Cooper Union, you know. <laughs> I, you see it happen all the time. I mean, you know, I think the new museum is a good example of a place where it used to be more of, you know, what you would consider a, a bona fide community space. And somewhere along the way, through this incredible process of growth and, and you know, the, the landing that new space and building, it's just, wow, incredible, so visionary. But you lose you like this is the same story that you see this in children's stories and yet adults still don't freaking get it it's like don't forget who you are don't forget what made you there in the same place so this is like i'm really trying to focus on this right now because as much as i'm swimming in like all of these grants and stuff like that i do not like believe in money or care about money or want money and like that's how we like need to keep it this is why I think Flux is uh, it, frankly just so lucky to have you. Like we've just gone through the line of all these organizations that have gotten funds and have changed in some sort of fundamental way. Like earlier on, like I think at the very beginning of the uh, episode you were talking about, you were like the Flux factories beginning as kind of like a party collective, which had made me think of Meow Wolf and to have that come yep. up later on as sort of, um, I think they became the poster child of like what that kind of collective would become. And like, even though it's just like one narrative, I think it's just such a like prevalent one. Yeah. That that's like, it's so, so many cautionary tales. Yeah. The there's, we're going down. there's, there's so much. And so it's really exciting to see something good happen. Like it gives me, it, it gives me a lot of, um, hope and optimism and like you know i'm ex i i think like it's just exciting to be able to tell your story i'm so excited to tell i could go on for like another few hours <laughs> yeah. uh speaking of meow, meow wolf i think uh my my wife and i are, are going to visit the meow wolf in denver with her family oh yeah I mean, it's oh, still I like that. she, that's, yeah she's like i don't want to go and i'm like i have to go i want to ah. see what that sort of corporate you know business model has sort of produced and and after going through the uh, immersive Van Gogh, I'm like, how bad could it be? You know, <laughs> like, ah, at least, at least in what they've made, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I would consider it sort of art anymore in terms of the spirit and ethos and ideas that, you know, and energy that, that, you know, we've been talking about that flux embodies, but I definitely want to check it out and see <laughs> what, what it is. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I love going to, you know, I'll, I'll go to all these spaces. Like I say, I, you know, I'll drink a $19 cocktail. I'll go to like a totally ridiculous corporate thing. Like love that stuff. Super fun. 
being a tourist in, in, uh, you know, what is actually America. Sometimes you forget, (laughs) you know, you'll go to a mall and you'll be like, whoa, right. I'm totally in this artist bubble. I Mm -hmm. forgot. I completely forgot what the real world is like. I mean, I, I don't know. This is a totally different subject, um, but I feel like malls have to be on the way out. Like the only thing that exists in like, it seems like the only thing that that's, that's supported anymore are like things where you have to go physically to. Yeah. You have to go out to yeah. get your haircut, but beyond that, like. Well, that's why the mall becomes a perfect place for Meow Wolf. You have to go experience it in this immersive yeah. space. Or right. I can see malls being repurposed for immersive. I mean, there's the American yeah. dream. Oh you my God. This, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how they're doing with the ski slope and all that. You, do you know the American oh, yeah, dream that's yeah, over the in one. the Meadowlands? They opened, oh my god, after like 25 years. Yeah. It was this total that this the state sunk like millions into this freaking place. Mm-hmm. And I've got to imagine there was a lot of Jersey style corruption and who gets the contracting, but and then they open with a ski slope and like a merry-go-round, and like Nick is in there and then the pandemic happened. Yeah, yeah. There was a really depressing sort of article oh, yeah, yeah, in the New York Times. It's just a ghost town, you know. Feel it's like a, so wow. bad for yeah. American Dream. Uh, well, it's a really house. interesting place to kind of stop because I, I yeah. know Patty and I maybe wanted yeah, yeah. To, to touch upon the uh, the the well the American dream, but also the kind of like existential threats to like democracy. You know, we're at the yeah. end of the line, but I think. You know, maybe that's that's you know the starting point for the next podcast, Patty. <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, Nat, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thank it was you. a pleasure having you on. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, we'd love to have you back anytime. So I was just about to invite myself back. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> we could always do a podcast at the uh, at one of the new spaces. It's like oh, cool! Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah we can get around the opening. Yeah, that could be cool. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye.